1: I'm Marjorie Punnett. I'm Elizabeth Reese. This is Best of the Nest, the podcast that's all about creating strong, comfortable, beautiful nests that prepare us to fly. And we have a wonderful guest this week who traveled to the living room to join us. (laughs) Uh, Ian Punnett is here. Of course, he's my husband. In first class, I hope. Yeah, sitting in our first class living room. He has been your permanent replacement host when you're not here for Best of the Nest. But today, he's just a guest. Not just a guest. He's a wonderful guest because... I think this is really exciting. You have a new podcast project, which I know many of the women that listen to this podcast will be interested in because women love true crime. And I got to give give everybody a little bit of your background on true crime.
2: I've always been interested in true crime and was not surprised when early on in my research, when I was getting my PhD, I learned that about somewhere between 60 and 70 percent of consumers of true crime are women.
0: Does that wow. surprise you, Elizabeth? Well, I, yeah, it does. And this will be kind of interesting because number one, you know, I'm always excited for Ian and all of his projects and all of his things, but um, I can't consume true crime. It's, I can't do it. I am in what sounds like the minority of women and because it messes with my mental state so much and I know Ian will respect that boundary and have no right. no offense taken. Because, But um, it does surprise me because what, I, what I'm surprised by is how many women can
1: handle it. Like, I well, can't handle it. I can't either. That's what's so interesting about when we talk about this. And Ian did his dissertation on true crime and did the last interview with one of the most famous true crime writers, Anne Rule, who wrote the book about Ted Bundy. Yeah. And we traveled to Seattle. I went with him. It was fascinating. And we he did. The, obviously, Ian did the interview with her and I just stood by and watched. But Anne Rule had the most interesting take on why she wrote true crime and why women consume true crime.
2: Yeah. I mean, it was all about if you really think about it growing up, you know, um, girls and boys are taught normative behavior through fairy tales. Right. And we learn what not to do from the way in which stories are described in terms of animals and fairies. And so uh, things like Little Red Riding Hood ultimately teaches young women as they become, um, as, they, as they reach into adulthood, uh, to avoid certain wolves.
1: It's early stranger danger.
2: Yeah, Yeah. it's wolves that are out there, the ones that are dressed as um, sheep or uh, wolves that will remind you of your grandmother or wolves that are so adept at being able to put you at ease. They're the ones you have to worry about. And that's really where true crime picks up. And that's why true crime is so popular and why it's so often passed along from mother to daughter is it, this is, these are the wolves you need to worry about. These are the men that you have to fear. This is how you protect yourself. Um, and so these stories become a continuation, I think, of the, of that sort of normative behavior tradition of, uh, of fairy tales and folk and tales.
1: How wow. old was Anne Rule when you talked to her? She was in her.
2: Yeah, Anne Rule was, I don't forget her actual age, but she had already had a major health scare and Marjorie came with me for one. I went by myself for the second. Um, Elizabeth will probably never remember the day that Seattle uh, beat the Packers in that surprising last uh, 70 seconds. I don't but, even
0: think it happened.
2: Yeah. I, yeah, the, <laughs> yeah. You'll probably totally I think that's that. a
0: fairy tale, <laughs>
2: right? Uh, but that was the day I flew in. So I'm on this plane and when we take off the the pilot, As we're flying to Seattle, the pilot is giving these regular updates on the score and clearly like half of the plane are pulling for the Packers. (laughs) And as we're pulling into uh, SeaTac airport, he starts giving these updates on the score. And suddenly that part of the plane goes very quiet. And the rest of the plane starts getting really loud. And then we all got off the plane and rushed to the nearest TVs during those, you know, in those terminal bars and everybody was like packed around those TVs watching and then that was the that was the first time I flew up and met with Aunt Rule and then we flew up one more time and recorded her on video too
1: but she was fascinating because she actually worked with Ted Bundy uh, she worked on a suicide hotline right next to him
2: that's how um, that was the origin of the of her first book the stranger beside me was that she and Ted were friends Um, and Ted had, um, Ted Bundy had lost a sister to suicide and she had lost a brother. Um, and so they were friends. They were just very, they, they were, they were like wine spritzer friends, you know, they go to some fern bar, you know, after they got off work and, um, and they, they were close and she, she just thought Ted was hung the moon and she just loved it. But the
1: strangest thing about all of that is she had already been writing true crime for decades.
2: Yeah, she was So this the... wasn't
1: like she took no. advantage of an opportunity because she knew a serial killer. She had already been writing true crime and she didn't see it. This she is wanted... the
0: universe. What is the universe doing to place her next to him? Isn't that wild to think about? Yeah.
2: It's crazy. Yeah, she, she had been raised fascinated by true crime. Both her her she came from a family of uh, deputies and sheriffs in Michigan. And they all had these true crime magazines lying around. And so she read them and they always told her, and you're going to have, you're going to have nightmares from these. And she, and she said, I never did. She said to me, they were just like fairy tales. They were just like the rude fairy tales
1: is how she referred to them. I love that. I love that expression a rude fairy tale, but they're
0: real. I mean, this is the thing that I wonder about. And I, and I wonder about with you, Ian, because I think, I mean, you know, this, I have, like just so much admiration so for right. you, and I think you are one of the most observant people I've ever met. And I also think you're one of the mo- the people who is most in tune with the core of what drives people, yeah. even when you right. like just when you meet them. This is how you right. are. So how how do you talk about this? Like and and I am, it's, I'm it's, anticipating
2: it's, your question. Yeah, I,
0: it's a real life, but these are yeah. real life. You know, when you're talking about Little Red Riding Hood, this isn't like a real girl who was abducted like it's a story this stuff i get so stressed out when it's like these husbands kill their wives and their children and as a mother and a wife Uh uh-huh it's like i can't even function i can't read people magazine because there's so many like terrible stories in there that are not having to do a celebrity so how are you reconciling this
2: so Anne told me so remember i had a very famous murder in my own family which we talked about on your show um uh, because Anne said she wanted to give voices to those women who couldn't speak for themselves anymore. Yeah. She had me right there. That's yeah. it. Yeah. And so all true crime must be victim centric. If it's you. not victim centric, if it's focused on the gruesomeness of the killer, and it turns into sort of this fetishization of, of what they did and what they did to the bodies. And the, it's not true crime anymore. True crime's purpose is to, uh, th- and this is Ann Rule's, this is her rule, if you will. Her rule's rule. Yeah, and so I, I I live by those. And so I, I don't think it, there are certain podcasts which are so focused on like the, oh, and then the killer did this and the killer did that. And Ann Rule's only purpose for bringing up what the killer did is to bring justice to the victims. Or, and this is also interesting about true crime from a very early time, was to call out the police when they got it wrong. Mm. Because journalism, you know, especially
1: when it came to women.
2: Yeah. Because they would ignore crimes that were
1: happening against women.
2: Right. And so it was a it's a very female-centric, very feminist position. And even the when the women are the perpetrators, Anne's point was it was still an equality play because it said, look, we're equal to men. We're not damsels in distress. Sometimes we kill. And so they need, they need to be brought to the same justice that men had.
1: This is interesting though, when Ian was somebody from vice news had, they were doing something on true crime and they had called Ian to sort of, because he wrote his dissertation on true crime and then it was right. published. And so if you search an academic database, you'll find that. And so they called him And they were trying to understand, too, that line between. And I react to the same way you do, Elizabeth. I find it very salacious. I find it. But there's a dividing line. And that's what the woman from the producer from Vice was trying to figure out. Like, what is true crime and what is just gruesome fetishization? I can't say that word. But you know, fetishization. I think that's That's, close. That's harder than Worcestershire sauce. (laughs) But I think that 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 there is a line and there is some purpose. And that's what was really revealing to me in listening to Anne talk about it is there is some almost a teaching purpose to true crime. So all of that, having been said, brings us to what and Elizabeth knows this and probably some of you know, this is Ian and I have worked together so many times over the years, no matter. I We always somehow swing back together. Project wise. And so this is his podcast, but it's such a unique podcast that was just dropped. When did it start dropping? Two weeks ago?
2: No, no. So, about, uh, yeah, about a month ago. um, So, I'm doing a podcast for iHeart. I wanted to do a fictional podcast, I wanted to write a story, but I wanted to write a story using the framework of what I know to be true from my investigation into that line between, and this is where you come into it, Elizabeth. crime journalism Mm -hmm. and true crime because i one of the things i watched was making a murderer where suddenly a young Elizabeth Reese pops up. Very young, yeah. And I said that to Marjorie, I'm like, that's ER. She's like, no way. (laughs) I'm like, that's ER right there. And you, because it was like a pan shot. You weren't even in like, and then later on you pop up in another moment. That it was always a matter of like, okay. So I, I wrote this series, it's called Bottom of the Box. And it's an eight part series. It's not true crime because it's not true. But it's based on all of these interviews I've had over the years about true crime and about and also about things like intuition. I get but it's great
1: because it it just explores everything that scares yes. us. And I didn't mean to interrupt you, but this is no, when no, he told great. me what he was going to do. I thought this was really cool. It is cool. So Ian's been doing a show called Coast to Coast for how many years? 23. Twenty three. Twenty three years. And has interviewed just the the range of people that he's interviewed is fascinating and oftentimes way ahead of the curve of what mm-hmm. other right. people are talking about. Right. And so the podcast interweaves interviews um, with experts on police interrogation, on intuition, on serial killers. And so it all interweaves real life interviews between Ian and these experts, and then goes back into this fictional story. Now, the fictional story is what's really, really fun. And Elizabeth, I wish you lived here because you would be a part of this. Oh, yeah. So just- I could help with sound effects or something. Oh, I'd be it's dragging so- you into
2: it so fast. Marjorie, Marjorie plays a lawyer. In I one play a lawyer? Oh, your she dream. refused to play my wife, which is what I wanted her to do. And then she didn't want to do it. So I had to no. find this other woman to do it. And then and then she's like, oh, no, I'd play your wife. And I'm like, well, too late. I already cast it. The so. wife was
1: a pretty good part. I didn't realize it was going to be a good part. So yeah. I play the lawyer. And then I have a very special scene later which is a very dramatic scene later in the episode as another character. But it's so fun because Elizabeth, we were all in one room. It was like being in the 1930s because we I had a, this. a professor, yeah. a couple of professors who were characters. From my
2: faculty colleagues. For, oh my gosh. I was going to say,
0: did someone kill someone with a candlestick too? Like what's going on in this game of clue that you guys well, are Well, it is
2: kind of a game of clue. <laughs> it, and, it is. And the clues are mostly in the real life interviews that I took segments from and used during the course. So I kind of play it a little bit as though these real life experts are commenting. And do you want
1: to say the character that you play? Oh, I I
2: play in this case, I played the main character, but I'm not a voice actor. You know, I'm, I don't want to be, but I, I happened to write this. And what I used was, things that had happened to me and happened to Marjorie when we were on the road shortly after when we were married. Can we tell
1: that one story? We don't have time. Look at your clock. What time is it? (laughs) You got to get a break in and everything. No, we don't. So we can tell the story. Can we tell the quick story? I think Elizabeth will be really frightened by this.
2: So the story is Right after Marge and I were married, we were driving down. It was the middle of the night. We both had to work that day. It was just before Thanksgiving, and we were racing with our new baby. Gar was just born, and uh, we were going down to Tampa, and we were going to um, we were going to see some family for Thanksgiving.
1: and we lived in Nashville at the time, so it was Nashville yeah, to Tampa. We
2: were in Atlanta. We were in Atlanta,
1: Nashville. Oh, I love these types of married conversations. This is great. And then who
2: wins is so fascinating to me. And when we came down, we were coming down the highway and um, we were going to switch in the middle of the night. And and she was going to drive for a little while and I was going to get to sleep. Marjorie had designed our Volvo so that there was just like this one little space in the back where somebody could fall asleep. But everything else was filled with all the (sighs) babies, right? It was just packed, luggage. And so I, I climb over everything and I get in this little, you know, this almost like cocoon casket, like size, you know, space in the, in the middle of this mix. And it's like two o'clock in the morning. I look out and we're at this abandoned gas station turnoff on 75. And I look out and I'm like, where's Marjorie? And I look out and Marjorie's talking to a guy outside the car. Wow. Oh, why why it's like about 10 yeah. yards away and i'm looking at this guy and and he had this he had kind of like a bloody nose going on and he was asking for something for his nose and Can i have a tissue and marjorie's gonna was gonna get him a baby wipes and i'm like get in the car what are you doing get in the car And so um, she just and and I didn't want to say it too loud because I didn't want to tip off the fact that I'm in the car with the baby. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So I'm just get in the car, get. And I just keep saying it, try to increasingly loud until I got her attention. But she has still hadn't heard me until she was walking back to the car to get this guy a baby wipe so he could, you know, wipe off his face. So he could probably kill me. And the lights, the lights come on from a car on the other side of this abandoned gas station. No way. Yeah. And I was like, and as soon as she got to the car, I said, get in the car and drive. Get in the car and drive. And it was like, it was like, it was like the spell had been broken, and she got in the car and we took off and we went back on the highway and all was fine. But in unpacking that moment for years. Um, just really that, that spoke to that sense of fear of what, what could have been, this guy was very disarming and had, and had charmed her into going back to the car and getting something. And I don't know what he was going to do, but it wasn't going to be good. Not at two in the morning, not with another guy in a car on the other side of the parking lot. And uh, who had had his lights off the whole time until Mm Marjorie turns his back on him and starts walking back to the car. And then we heard the story of a highway uh, killer. And there's a lot of true there's a lot of serial killers who work only work highways in the United States. And I called it in and said, I've encountered this person. I know who this is. And they totally laughed it off. And I'm like, "No, no, no, you don't understand. we We ran into him, and they're like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, whatever.
1: It was and super they strange. Never followed it up. It was super strange because I was just trying to be nice. Like, and I don't know, like I'm so afraid of everything. Like, why, right. in that moment, I was just completely it was I look back at it too, because I think about it. I mean, clearly he didn't see Ian. he didn't I think he thought I was alone,
0: right. Yeah. Right. And well, you so were also sleep deprived if you had a new baby. So maybe that was part totally of it. Totally
1: sleep deprived. right? I and mean... just, just not in my right mind to assess the situation, which a lot of what true crime goes back to is that idea that predators are always, their antenna is up for disorientation oh. and for vulnerability and distraction. And so- oh. All of that was working in that moment. The new baby's in the back. Ian's trying to get settled. It's late at night. We're trying to get going. I am tired. I mean, I'm sure between work and the baby, getting packed, everything else, it's like, we've just got to get to Tampa. And so all of that was working in the favor. But you look at that moment of how is he there in that moment when we've pulled off the highway? I mean, it's just and I think bad things happen and they're coincidental confluences of bad moments Mm -hmm. because he's like a
2: wolf spider he was just waiting for the right prey to walk past and then he'd jump out of that little hole in the ground and pull it back into the hole
1: but it's so frightening it's so frightening so
2: that's Um, that that's the that's the kind of this is a sort of unofficial information which is what true crime became famous for the police weren't telling us that when ted bundy was cruising the campuses elizabeth nobody was saying, oh, well, whatever you do, watch out. There's a serial killer out there. The only people who are doing it were women and they were empowering themselves and they were sending faxes. You know, how far back do we have to go for that? And they were (laughs) literally like faxing sorority to sorority. Watch out for this guy. Mm -hmm. Watch out for this guy. And there's this guy and he looks like the kind of guy you'd bring home to mother. Don't. Here's what he does. And this was the only way. This was the uh, this was women empowering women, and this is really this the true story of true crime is giving a voice to the to people who have lost that ability to speak for themselves, yeah. But are really crying out, saying, "I need justice," and that's where Ann Rule was. That's what that's my fascination with it, and why I still believe in it as a genre and then this podcast vaudeville for the frightened kind of plays off of that in a fictional context because i just was i'm sort of fascinated by fear like what scares people you know like what is it like like what scares marjorie is in this podcast yes a little part yes. i was asking her questions because i i'm not afraid of much except for the mole people and yeah. and so i would I would ask, uh, I would ask Marjorie, like, "Well, what about this? What about that?" And she, oh, I'd be totally scared." But then, <laughs> one big moment, where she could, where she should have been totally afraid, I wasn't. she wasn't, and had come, made herself completely vulnerable. And wow. it's that moment
1: too. It's that moment too of like when he finally broke through. and he say, "Get back in the car! Get back in the car! Get back in the car!" And then it was like a spell was broken. And then once I got in the car and I'm driving away. Then all of the fear, because then, and, you know, if you, I think if you ask Ian, what makes you, what frightens you? Because there isn't much that frightens him. That moment frightens him. Yeah oh, yeah. That moment is frightening. And that moment for any of us where we, we find ourselves in a situation that is so horrific. And I always feel like I was able to, the fact that we were able to drive away from that moment, I just feel incredibly lucky and so grateful to Ian. So what scares you, What scares you? scares
0: you, Elizabeth? Oh, I got like a million things that scare me. I'm afraid of, if I start listing the things that I'm afraid of, it'll go on forever. I'm all, I covered, this is the other thing. I have a news background. So all of this stuff, it, I know I've met a lot of these people and a lot of this stuff that really scares me is things that could happen to my children that would shape who they are for their life that's right. like the biggest fear at the core so one I remember covering this was when I was in Green Bay I tra- covered a lot of crime in Green Bay and there was a lot of weird crime in like outstate Wisconsin but I remember covering in Green Bay when um the Catholic diocese started all of the allegations started and it was hitting you know of course it started in Boston with the sexual abuse scandal but then when it was then just moving across the country. And they were digging into every diocese and finding this pattern of abuse and this pattern of priests Mm -hmm. who'd been moved. And I interviewed a couple of guys who'd been sexually abused by a priest when they were young. And it was the way that they talked about how that experience how they didn't even start to reconcile how damaging that had been until they had their own children. And then their own children were about the age that they were when they were abused was when it all came flooding back. And I saw how that I remember just like looking at their faces and seeing how that haunted them and seeing how that broke them. And it was so difficult and um and that was a pivotal moment for me of figuring out what I was afraid of and I was afraid of that for my own children that I hadn't even had that I wasn't even gonna have for like 15 years. But yeah that's a huge and then one. It, that was a big one. I and you know it's interesting when you talk when you brought up making a murderer because of course as you were talking about this that's like what what I started thinking about. And I covered the Stephen Avery trial and the Brendan Dassey trial. I covered more importantly, the search for Teresa Hallbach, who was the young woman who was murdered and who went missing. And when I watched Making a Murderer, and we've talked about this on, on this podcast, but probably years ago, Marjorie. When yes. <laughs> I when I watched Making a Murderer, what what's interesting when you talk about the this idea of being victim-centric? So the creators of Making a Murderer will argue that they were victim-centric because they're painting Stephen Avery as the victim. So the whole story is about him being painted as a victim and a person who was wrongly convicted of murdering Teresa Hallbach and the difficulty that i had watching that was that Teresa Hallbach was completely lost in the whole thing that she was simply an accessory she was very rarely mentioned and it led to me um i pulled out a big pack of dvds that i have here um that i store in this folder and i went through because I was like, I felt such guilt. Like, did I not ask these questions? Was I asking the questions? And then I went back and watched my coverage, story after story after story. I saved almost every single one. I had like this weird TiVo DVD recorder set up in my apartment in Green Bay, which was, by the way, way ahead of its time, might (laughs) I add. Um, But I would, and I went back and watched them and I was like, because i'm only seen a couple of times in it i mean i wasn't painted as one of the main reporters even though i you know they picked a couple people i was there the whole time and i also wasn't as eclectic as the other reporters that were featured in the right.
1: in the docu makes-
0: series But I looked back and I was like, I did, I did ask those questions and I did focus on her and I was proud of that because, you know, your memory sort of is, and it was a traumatic experience, absolutely covering that. I would 100% list as traumatic for me. I broke out in shingles at the end of it. It was the beginning of the end of my journalism career because it was just so much for me. And it was, and I know that happened for a lot of reporters. Multiple reporters I know who worked in Green Bay at that time who covered it. We've talked about since that that was the beginning of the end for them. They just and couldn't, couldn't do it anymore. Because a lot of it was she was right around our age. You know, we were all young. A lot of us were young reporters. So I was 25, she mm. was 25 or 26 Right. And in making of a murderer, she was completely lost, and and I understand because again, I understand that the makers of that docu series are are centering it around their victim, which they believed was Stephen Avery. But that's but still hard. That, she's a casualty, and she's literally a casualty, and then she's figuratively a casualty. And um, and I was when I saw my coverage, I knew that I focused on her and that I can, and and that was different. And I looked at her bone fragments for six weeks on screens as I covered it. And I think it's hard for me to consume these stories because it's, it was so real for like a time in my life when I was also really forming who I was. It was when
1: I was in my twenties, you know, now I'm like, old. I know who I am. (laughs) Then I was like figuring it out. But I do think there's something too, when you're up and close to those kind of stories on a day-to-day basis, it is harder to consume. For me, it's harder to consume as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the hardest things for me as a producer is when a child would die or there was a shooting victim. And I was a producer, so you'd be not the assignment editor, but somebody would have to say to the reporter, you got to go knock on their door. Yeah. You got to go knock on their door. And I would have
0: to go knock on the door.
1: You got to, yeah, you've got to go get um, the, the family's reaction to what has happened. And Ian and I, had a discussion about this at the time. I mean, I think I was 22 or 23 when I was producing. And I I said, I find that so abhorrent that we're interrupting this family at a time of such grief. And Ian's reaction was completely different than mine, which was, if something happened to my child, I would want to shout out to the world, look at what has happened, Mm -hmm. be in my grief with me. Am I saying that fairly about you?
2: Very biblical. Which yeah. was just I wanted every I would have climbed to the tallest mountain and screamed it. I didn't want it. I didn't want it to just be a private loss that nobody would notice. I wanted I would want it to be something that people talked about for generations. Um that's it's almost selfish. Why my child more than anybody else's child? I don't know. Which but is what that would be my impulse is that everybody needs to know what we just lost.
1: Which helped me make that request even if it's, you know, tangentially to those families to speak, because obviously you can't force them to. But all of that having been said, it is it is a very personal choice as to whether you can take in that information or not. But I still don't. But I know a lot of women that do. And I do think and rule made me understand better why women are the top consumers of true crime. And that idea of it being a warning system of it of it helping women to trust their instincts when somebody feels, man or woman, when something feels creepy or wrong, mm-hmm. trust it. Your instincts are good and, yeah. and you need to trust that. And true crime validates that feeling.
2: Well, think about this, Elizabeth, because of Making a Murderer, you there was a series where people, women who were putting themselves in vulnerable positions like they would have been with Stephen Avery, hmm yeah. They, they thought twice for maybe the first time in their life when somebody was telling them, oh, just go in, you're in a penny saver, you know, take your photo of the car and drive away or whatever. And they're like, nope, not going to do it. Yeah. And how many that's what Anne Rule always said was how many women came up to her afterward and said, you saved my life. Yeah. I read your book. And i knew i was living with a narcissist sociopath and i had to get out of the relationship i could for the first time i could see this was the person who was going to kill me and i had to get out now and that was what ann rule that's what validated her experience she wrote 45 number one best sellers in true crime she is the leading queen of true crime and that was her sole focus Was to save women.
0: It's so fascinating. I remember my mom telling me a story. um, And it was that same thing of passing that knowledge down from mothers to daughters. And when my mom was an interior designer, she would do house calls. Mm -hmm. And have I told you this before, Marjorie? I don't know Mm -hmm. if I've told you this she would do house calls. And so, you know, she meets with clients in their homes all the time. You know, I mean, this is like a very big part of her job, but then she was like a starting out designer. She went back to school at 40 to get her design degree. You know, the Reese's are sometimes like the punnets that are just constantly (laughs) in an education. Um, Yeah. But my mom, um, she, this guy was like, came in and was like super nice, super charming. And was like, okay, I just bought this condo. Like, you know, it's in this location. And I'm really looking for like this kind of look. I mean, gave the whole spiel of like being really interested and seeming like he had the money to pay for something, which if you're a designer and you work on commission and you have three little kids, like that seems really great. And he asked her to come to his house to do a house call. And something in her said No. Something in her was like, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go. And you guys would, of course, call that the still small voice, which I listen to regularly. And he went on to lure another designer there and assaulted her. It was just like you guys with that guy. She called the police and she was like, I know that guy. And they did listen to her. And she said- I know that story and I know this person, he came and approached me and they were able to put together like a timeline. And I don't know whatever happened if they ever found him or I'm, I would assume they did. I don't know. I mean, it wasn't like there were cameras everywhere in the stores then, you know, that you'd be able to get a picture of him. But, um, but my mom told me that story when I was young and it was that lesson. And it was that fairy tale, if you will, of watch out for this. And if you get that gut feeling, you always need to trust it. You
1: have to trust it. And I think that was...
2: What's the worst it'll be? You'll be wrong. So what?
1: So you what? Know, the The New York Times right now is just running... Last week or the week before was running a series on the danger to realtors who are in the same position. Yeah. And so they've been yeah. interviewing all of these female realtors who... You hold an open house. A lot of times, you know, people walk through when they walk through. But a lot of times it's just the realtor who's alone in an empty house.
0: With one person. With yeah. one
1: person walking through. So I think that I, I'm always fascinated by the work that Ian had done on true crime and what it meant. But this podcast is something different and 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 I think really creative and interesting and and um
2: and the ending made Marjorie very mad which I love. Oh, Ooh, I'm <laughs> I am excited to listen I, to this. I, that was like my greatest triumph. Was, I was like you had to end it like that. And I'm like, "Yep." Oh my gosh, I can hear her saying that. But there's oh, a sequel. Marjorie, you're here. But there's uh, a sequel. So good. Okay. I will it, say it, too. In, oh, go ahead. No, it's because it, but the interesting piece is also at the very beginning. You know, I sort of played off of this Why? Well, "Yay. Yeah, you know, Ian Punnett's a nice guy." Image because that's the way a lot of these serial killers come off too. I, know, I know. You know. They come off as like, oh, well, you know, you could always trust them. So I I was trying to get that feeling where you're like in a chair and you're leaning back in the chair and you don't know whether you're going to fall over backward or you're going to fall forward. I'm looking for that sweet spot. And I was trying to write to that sweet spot. What a piece of art. Marjorie,
0: I will say your husband's new podcast makes the production of our podcast look like total crap
1: <laughs> <laughs> i wouldn't say that it's That's different we, what we call our podcast delivers we have low production value thank you thank low you production value he has higher production value but it is it is wonderful it, it it was a it was a really even though the subject matter is fairly dark it was such a fun project to be a part of and makes me wish that I lived in the 1930s. But I said to Ian, I'll be I'll be a cast member. And we have this little cast going, and it's just super, it's super fun because they're all really good people and very okay, talented this people. is so
0: good. Well, Ian, congratulations. Tell everybody the name of it before we go.
2: So again, the series is called Vaudeville for the Frightened, and you can find Vaudeville for the Frightened just by searching for it. The first series under that title is called Bottom of the Box which is also part of the mystery. What is the bottom of the box? And why are we titling that? That's a theme that plays into most of the episodes. And then, uh, t- uh, you know, and then typically I, I'm on coast to coast, still about two or three times a month. Uh, and it just so happens that tomorrow night I'll have on a police investigator who's uh, who teaches at an academy who's going to talk about how um, the local police very likely didn't see this Gilgo Beach killer. Like how was it that that lens was so dirty that they didn't ever make an arrest on somebody who they had suspected all along. So he'll
1: be on Coast to Coast tonight and tomorrow night, which is always such an interesting thing in our house because he broadcasts from home from midnight until four o'clock in the morning. But I wanna say coming up next week, we're gonna have a professor from K-State and she studies human development and families. And Elizabeth, I talked to this woman, we had a dinner party. She's a friend of mine. She was over at the house and she started talking about the research that she had been looking into about how technology is disrupting family structure.
2: Is she not also a cast member?
1: She is also a cast member.
2: (laughs) She's, great, in the, guys. she's in the You guys are
1: infiltrating
0: this podcast. Ooh, I love this. This is great. <laughs> well, I, we love have you,
2: Ian. friends. So we have to get, we have, we have to make the most out of it. We have to squeeze the juice out of everyone. I feel that. the same
0: way. Same way. Love you, Ian. Thank you so you. much. Always so good. All okay. Right. If you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and give us a review at Apple podcasts.
1: And we have a review from Wanda. She said, I enjoyed your last two episodes on decluttering. And only bringing into your home items that are really needed. Now, I have never been a pack rat, and I rather enjoy purging. After listening to Marjorie talk about getting rid of 50% of what they own, I was inspired, and I thought, I'm going to do that, too. She said, (laughs) my husband and I are retired and moved to Minneapolis about eight years ago to be near our kids and grandkids. We got rid of a lot of stuff before we loaded up and came here, but I thought I might as well see what I can get rid of now. I'm on my second week of purging, and we have taken four loads of things to a thrift store to donate them. I have more to go. I'm not done yet. Um, so she said, thank you, ladies, for inspiring me. I didn't realize we had as much to dispose of as we did. Just call me the purging queen. I think she's doing better than I am. Good job, Wanda.
0: Wanda, you purging queen. We love you. We salute you. Fabulous. We do.
1: Find us on Facebook and Instagram at Best to the Nest. We are the podcast that brings you home.